I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Ben. Hi, Agnes. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. I yeah. don't know why I'm welcoming you. I'm welcoming everyone that's, well, that's listening, but you're also welcome. Welcome obviously. to you too. You're, you're always welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I suppose it's welcome back, really, because you've been away, haven't you? I have. I feel like almost every episode we do, one of us has been away. I know, and this is, is actually quite rare. Yeah, and I, I want to make sure everyone understands that this is it's completely really, HR compliant. It's really we are, rare. we're not just taking holidays no. whenever we want, no, willy, willy nilly. Willy nilly, no. No, we're, it's all been signed off. It's legitimate. <laughs> yeah. No, I've just got back from a a field in Wales. Lovely. Lovely. A some... soggy field. No, it was so dry. Really? Yes. Astonishing. Bit of drizzle. Okay. Couple of wet nights. But you expect that, don't you? That was it. It was almost too hot on Sunday. Oh, yeah, I was working my second job. <laughs> <laughs> working your second job. Yeah. What does but, that comprise? Well, I work box at the office. box office, so I put wristbands on people. Okay. For nice. two days. So nice. But did you actually get to look at see any of the music? I did. I because had... seeing music is really what you. <laughs> go for. What you go for? I suppose. Yeah. Some well. may listen to it, but I really I, I go for the seeing. Do you? <laughs> yeah. I also go for the cheese toasties. To be honest, Ooh, cracking nice. festival food. Nice. Fish curries. Ooh. You know. Nice. So it's one of those festivals. It was quite a, <clears throat> a lot quite of a, vegans. Okay. Right. Yep. Um, was there a riot at the fish curry stand? There wasn't. There were large queues, though. A lot of older men with young children, which does prove to me that men who listen to indie folk mature later. <laughs> uh, there's hope for my brother yet. <laughs> exactly. If you like Indeed. grizzly bear, you'll have a kid yeah. at 50. And well, in a, in a classic test match special trope, We've got some cake in the studio, cake. which is nice. <laughs> Why do we have cake in the studio? I'd like to say it was sent in from an avid listener. Please do um, send us cake, Muriel by from the way, West guys. Sussex. But actually, it's uh, it's cake that <laughs> I purchased myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's nice. It's definitely perked me up a bit. We've got cake. <laughs> I'm very happy about Red it. velvet cake. Yeah, you're just going to munch through this intro. Potentially, Great. yeah, yeah. So I just need to judge the bits where you're going to talk for more than about ten <laughs> seconds. Then I can get through stuff. Otherwise, it's going to be crumbs everywhere. Yeah, true. Um, well, while I've been away, you've you've done some organising, haven't you, for the fourth floor of Chatham House? Some organisation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're going to have this out on this introduction. <laughs> Fair enough. <clears throat> so, oh. you know, you, you you're talking to someone, and they just come out with something that is just so bemusing, so utterly just outside your realm of knowledge. Yeah, for me, yeah. it was when you the... said you didn't like Pizza Express. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so we've all got one. Yeah. <laughs> so the latest one of these was my friend Agnes, <laughs> who last week admitted openly, in fact volunteered the information, hey guys, I have never eaten Chinese food. What? I don't understand why this is so shocking. You've not eaten the cuisine of twenty five percent of the world's population. I know it's not been purposeful. It's just it's just never come up. Yeah. And what were your reasons for that? I think there was there was one particular reason which I thought might be pertinent to listeners of this podcast. I can't, I don't know if that was this one or not, but I because I never had a takeaway until I got to university. Yes, that was, that was, <laughs> was that. it. So that talk one? me through that. Was that just? You lived in such a wilderness that there were no chippies near your house? No. Or was it just a deliberate choice from your parents? My parents just didn't... Just I was going to say they didn't believe in that, but that implies they think it's not real. I don't know. Yeah, we just ne- I just never had a takeaway until I got to university. I know, like, um, you know, I went to Pizza Express. Worthy meals. I wasn't a monster. <laughs> I feel like we're drifting. Yeah, sorry. No, so yeah, so I've never had Chinese food. Yeah, so you've food. never had Chinese food. Which and, is shocking. Which is shocking, and everyone was shocked. So we have, including up the couple of people on our colleagues who you know used to live in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, indeed. One of whom is actually of Chinese origin. Yeah, yeah. Hi, Mike. Hi, Mike. <laughs> Avid listener to the pod, friend of the pod. Yeah, indeed. Gives let's us, upgrade him. Gives us a lot of feedback. He does certainly <laughs> gives a lot of feedback, but it's all worth it. Yeah, and all appreciated and all valued and very considered. Yeah. So yes, so to to mitigate this. To solve this problem, we're taking you out for Chinese food next week. By the next... Are you excited? I'm I'm very excited. I am a bit worried about the pressure, to be honest. Mm. Um, I worry that I will be a little bit of a focus, so I'm going to have to enjoy it even if I don't. 
Um, but yeah, by the That's next... a kind of exquisitely English experience, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God! Be polite! Yeah, People I'm have made an effort. Compelled to be polite. Yeah. So, yeah, but by the next next episode of this podcast, I will have eaten Chinese food. Don't say we don't give you thrilling... There we go. <laughs> thrilling we go. hooks. Yeah, exactly. So tune in yeah. to hear her response. What did we do this week? What have, who have you spoken to? Well, I've spoken to Georgina Wright, who is from Chatham as Europe programme, and she is one of their leading spokespeople on Brexit. Joy Brexit. of joys, we're finally doing Brexit. We've not done Brexit. We've not bored you with Brexit updates every week. No, we've been we've trying not the to right do time Brexit too to much. To get Georgina in and talk to her about everything in the round, talking about particularly the European perspective on it, or rather the EU's perspective on it, yeah. I should say. Because um, a lot of the conversation around Brexit seems to revolve around what three or four Conservative ministers think about this, which is not necessarily the, the whole case. story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so really interesting. But who did you speak to? I spoke to Oliver Bullough, <coughs> who is an author and writer and journalist, um, about his new book, which is called Moneyland, nice. uh, which comes out at the beginning of September. And, yeah, we had a good chat about... I mean, money laundering, really. And Great. Did you learn any tips? Any, <laughs> yes, any this, hot tips you want to share? This is a how-to, yeah. guys. Um, <laughs> money laundering for dummies. Yeah, um, no, and excellent. It, yeah, he some really exciting, well, not exciting, uh, innovative examples of the way that people have... <laughs> the just, ingenious ways that the super rich have managed to hide avoid some of their money. Tax. Yeah, no, well, but it was a really interesting chat. Sounds potentially depressing. Yes, it's a depressing topic, and yet... There's quite a bit of giggling in the interview. <laughs> you got to laugh. you got to laugh at the ingenious <laughs> nature of this stuff. You well, do. I remain to be convinced, but I suppose the only way is to have a listen. Right, so now I'm joined by Georgina Wright, who is a research associate in the Europe programme at Chatham House. And we are here today to finally discuss Brexit. Georgina, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. We've kind of deliberately shied away from discussing Brexit at the moment, partly because the news just moves so quickly. But we thought over the summer it would be good to kind of take stock of where we are and look ahead to the sort of coming months, the kind of decisive months in this hopefully, in this two-year negotiation. Georgina, could we just begin by just quickly running us through kind of where we stand? As we are now, what is what has happened in the Brexit negotiation and what's coming up? Well, obviously, we're seven months away now from the UK's exit from the EU. Michel Barnier, who heads the negotiations on behalf of the EU, has said that around 80% of the terms of the withdrawal have been agreed to. So they still need to resolve 20%, um, and that's mostly around the future of the Irish border. So how can you maintain it open? How can you keep trade as frictionless as possible? And those terms need to be resolved at the latest um, in October because that's when the European Council is meeting, that's when they're um, supposedly going to vote on it and approve the agreement and also because that would allow sufficient time for ratification on the UK and the EU side and that's really important. So although we are seven months away, we've only technically got three or four months to finalise the terms of the withdrawal. And what happens if for whatever reason, we don't get it in time, we don't get the things ratified in time. Say we've made a deal, but actually there's we make it with two months to go and people can't realistically ratify it in their yeah. domestic parliaments. Do, do we know what happens if that's the case? It's a big, big question. <laughs> I think the EU is standing firm and the Commission have certainly said we can't go beyond autumn. I'm sure that push comes to shove, there might be some flexibility, there might be ways to, you know, um, accelerate that. So I don't think that is so much the worry at the moment. I think the real worry is can the UK and the EU actually agree to all the terms of the withdrawal? Than it because there's still a lot to be negotiated and they still don't see eye to eye. Um, so I think that's the biggest worry at the moment. Just drilling down a bit on on one of those areas that you mentioned, um, what is the real sticking point around the Irish border? Why why is this 
proving so difficult to work out? Um, It is really quite complicated. But to put it simply, back in December 2017, the UK and the EU agreed a political declaration where they said, OK, you know, we're going to try and finalise the terms of the withdrawal, but we'll also talk about the future relationship. And because the, the future of the Irish border kind of falls within both. Obviously, there's an impact now immediately with withdrawal, but it also can be impacted by the future relationship. Now, in that declaration, what was said essentially was, OK, in the absence of a viable solution that would maintain that border open, Northern Ireland would effectively remain part of the EU single market and customs union. But that it would that solution would also respect the territorial and constitutional integrity of the UK. Now, that's obviously not possible. So there's a big question about, OK, well, how do we move forward from that? Because the UK says under no circumstances can we have Northern Ireland as part of a separate regime. But equally, their proposal, which is, okay, let's keep the whole of the UK part of the single market for goods, um, has been seen by the EU as a way of cherry picking. So basically keeping those bits of the single market that the UK likes and then pulling out of the uh, bits that it doesn't like. So it's unclear what's going to happen. Now, my sense is that they will find a political fudge of sorts where they will say, okay, we'll either agree to come back to the issue of Northern Ireland as part of our talks on the future agreement Mm -hmm. Or that Northern Ireland would remain part of um, the single market and customs union, but for a very limited amount of time. So it would be time limited. I mean, yeah, we, we shall see. But I expect we'll, we'll hear more in the coming months. I'd like to take a look now just at the EU side of the negotiations. Obviously, you mentioned uh, Michel Barnier is the kind of the, the figurehead that makes all of the headlines here in the UK often negative (laughs) from the media's perspective. But what has been his general approach to these negotiations? And has it been well received generally among the remaining EU member states? That's a really interesting question. I think it really drills down to how does the EU generally conduct trade negotiations? Now, this isn't a trade negotiation per se, because obviously it's a very new form of negotiation for the EU. But it very much replicates the way that the EU conducts negotiations with third countries. So The commission leads on the negotiations. It receives a mandate from the council, so Mm -hmm. from member states. And every time there's a negotiating round, the commission meets before and after to clarify the position they've put together to make sure that member states approve it. And then after the negotiating round, they they then meet with member states again, explain, update them on on the state of talks, say where there have been sort of movement, where they could improve, and again, putting forward proposals on the table. So in that sense, the process is very tight knit. I mean, the commission inform member states throughout. They have these special meetings called Sherpa meetings, which uh, is is a very technical term but essentially um, member state attaches in Brussels meet and discuss these issues so nothing has come as a surprise and Barnier has been a very uh, so they say um, a very good communicator now When member states have disagreed on the Commission's approach or when they felt the Commission's gone a little bit too far in its rhetoric, they have pushed back. And I expect that when talks begin on the future agreement, member states might be pushing back more because obviously there's much more in the balance. I mean, if we think that negotiations so far have been contentious you know let's wait until talks on the future (laughs) agreement begin but in the sense they are very member states are very happy with the way that negotiations are being conducted it's not new to them I think it's it's very new for the UK though which is something we can come back to in terms of how the UK has negotiated and how that differs from the previous way or the way that it used to negotiate in Brussels. As you say we're, we're sort of coming to this crunch time now decision time before March do you see the process as it's gone so far satisfactorily gone so far continuing from the EU's point of view or is there going to be a point can you foresee a point where actually the heads of states in the major like European nations are they going to sort of become more hands-on do you think there's going to be a time where Macron and Merkel sort of sit down and decide right this is how we're going to do it or is it or do you think they're going to keep going through Mm. the sort of official process I mean Who knows, essentially, but the EU has a process Mm -hmm. and to consider or think of the Commission as one player amongst 28 is the wrong approach. The Commission negotiates on behalf 
of member states. Yeah. It discusses all its positions, it builds many of its positions with member states and it revisits its position with member states. So as long as they're happy with the process, there's no reason to expect any sort of you know direct intervention from mm. from any heads of government. Of course, as I said, you know, if, if the commission were to push, you know, forward or push a policy proposal that member states disagreed with then yes you might see more direct intervention but i just don't at the moment it's you know they seem very happy with the way things are done so do you think in a in a way it was slightly naive for some spokesmen here in the uk to assume that a kind of divide and conquer kind of approach to these negotiations would be would be useful uh, there was a lot of talk um, particularly from leading figures in the Leave campaign about um, as soon as we threaten the future of Prosecco sales, Italy are going to have a problem with the way these negotiations are going. Do you mm. think that's a sort of a misplaced um, approach? I think, to be honest, it, it partly reflects the way that the UK has negotiated in Brussels as a member state. So to put things very simply... As a big member state, you can often call the shots. So if the UK supported a proposal, it would say so loudly and clearly in the European Council, and that was it. If it disagreed, it would also say loudly and clearly in the council that it disagreed and meanwhile would ring up different capitals, try and build alliances, try and build a credible case for why this policy should be either changed or dropped. And then it was pretty much the commission that would come up with alternatives and then present those at the next council meetings. We're in a very different negotiation right now. It's the UK versus the EU. Mm. Um, the UK has now put forward a proposal, so the so-called Chequers Plan uh, for the future. The EU's already said, OK, we welcome it, but it's not detailed enough. The UK is negotiating with the EU. The Commission acts on behalf of member states. So it's very difficult to see how trying to build alliances with member states is going to work. Now, by all means, I think it's important that the government continues its diplomacy, continues to talk to member states, capitals, kind of, you know, um, present the British position, explain why it's important, explain why they see it as the solution. But I can't see how, if, if that is the government strategy, how they would be able to kind of turn... Um, capitals against the commission, particularly because it would seem that EU capitals are quite happy with the way negotiations are unfolding right now. Mm -hmm. Now, turning back to the UK side of the negotiations, um, it's early days, I suppose, but at the start of the summer, we had a sort of change of command, a bit of a reshuffle with the the Brexit Secretary David Davis resigning and Dominic Raab, who was also prominent in the Leave campaign, taking on that role. Mm. Although it's been kind of the summer recess and politically not much has happened, have you been able to discern a kind of difference in approach that that Mr Raab is trying to take or is it more kind of continuity? I mean, it's difficult to say. Obviously, um, Secretary of State hasn't been in his position for very long. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you take his visits to Brussels into account, today I think he's meeting Michel Barnier for the third time. Yeah. David Davis visited Brussels um, three times in one year. So um, wow. I think clearly the new Secretary of State, Dominic Rubb, sees it as uh, an important step in travelling to Brussels, in meeting with Michel Barnier, in presenting the position. Will that, you know, translate into more effective uh, negotiations? Is it a new strategy? I, I mean, I don't know. It's very difficult to say. But it certainly signals that um, the Secretary of State cares about this process. And, you know, I think we often forget amidst all this no deal debate that actually the UK government wants a deal and the EU wants a deal as well. So maybe this is a good show and intent that they want to find a deal. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that... A note on the no deal. Do you think, as as many people want to argue, is a no deal a viable solution to this? If at the end of this we can't make an agreement, is there going to be this kind of cliff edge that everyone's terrified about? Or is it going to work? I guess this is where it becomes complicated because first thing to, to think about really is how would we get to a no deal? Mm. Well, there are several ways of that. One is the UK and the EU fail to agree on those 20% outstanding issues for the withdrawal. Mm -hmm. Uh, in time, and so we have no deal. Uh, the second would be that the UK and the EU reach an agreement on the terms of the withdrawal, but that actually the British Parliament rejects 
and says, you know, this isn't satisfactory, this doesn't meet, uh, you know, what we expected, and therefore we also either go through a process of renegotiation, but then we'd have to extend Article 50. There are all sorts of legal questions around that. Is that possible? How do you go about it? Um, the council would need to give a mandate, new mandate to, to Michel Barnier. I mean, lots of questions around that. Mm-hmm. But then there's also another sort of no-deal scenario, which is the UK and the EU reach a withdrawal agreement, then go into a transition-slash-implementation phase for two years, and then at the end of the two years, fail to negotiate a future framework, and then we fall into a no-deal. So I think it's really important to remind ourselves of the different risks associated. Now, the second thing to to bear in mind is there isn't a no-deal model, ready-made model. So mm. WTO terms cover certain things, for example, tariffs, which would mean that you could continue to trade. But there are lots of things that WTO terms do not cover, So especially what we call non-tariff barriers. So if you're a British business and you're exporting to the EU, the UK crashes out of the EU with no deal, you face tariffs, so you're going to have to pay to export to the EU and yeah. vice versa, of course. But then what happens is you've got to you know, fill in all this paperwork to prove that your, that your products meet EU standards and then the transport company that's, that's you know, going to take your produce and, and travel through the, also has to fill in all sorts of licensing certificates, VAT, customs duties, checks at the borders... All of those issues are not covered by WTO terms. So unless we've got contingency planning in place, it would be very uh, sort of serious, you know, queues at the border and questions around that. If the government and the EU manage to kind of put that contingency planning in place, then there would be some disruption, but it doesn't necessarily have to be as catastrophic as some people predict. But it would be far less efficient, and any time trade is less efficient, there are costs involved, and you know, usually producers pass those costs on to consumers. Obviously, quite a lot of our discussion so far has sort of considered the kind of technical and regulatory and legal um, issues and processes. But obviously, another side of it is persuading the voter, the man on mm. the street or woman on the street, that the outcome is what they wanted, particularly for people who voted to leave the EU. Do you think that enough is being done to communicate the fact that a negotiation means that there's compromise on both sides? Because it does feel sometimes listening to people in the media or reading social media or something that, that people are sort of going, why haven't we just left? Why is this so difficult? Why do we have to give them anything? The whole point is that we don't want to give them anything anymore. I mean, it's a really important question. To be honest, I mean, I feel like I look at Brexit really closely and I find it complicated. <laughs> so I think it is it is just a very complicated negotiation. I mean, Brexit is political. Obviously, as you said, there's a Remain versity, but then there are all sorts of questions of what we want, what we hope to gain out of it. And then there are questions around, will it be damaging or will it be infor- you know reinforcing, strengthening our relations with our EU partners? Mm. But then Brexit is also a legal and technical process. So, you know, legal, there are requirements around what is feasible or not. And same for the technical, you know, having a vision of we want a very strong agreement is one thing and it's an important step, but then you need to know how it's going to work in practice. And then there are lots of questions around regulatory framework, divergence and all and all mm. of those issues. Explaining that to the electorate, to the public is always going to be very complicated. And even if you say, look, there's going to be compromise even then, it's very difficult to say what compromise yeah. there will be because we're yeah. still in the midst of negotiations. But I do think that you're absolutely right that throughout this process, it's it's been very sort of almost high-level politics. Every time we talk about the public, it's always been, well, you know, leave voters voted this. But actually, we don't really know what voters want. And, and perhaps that's been the missed opportunity of Brexit. And I do think that there is definitely a, a bigger role for for government, but also Parliament, in really communicating the complexity, in, in you know as far as you can, and also explaining sort of you know what kind of compromises and why we're having to compromise because this kind of idea that there is a model and then another model is is just wrong. The, it, we're still negotiating what our future outcome is going to be like. Okay, moving away from the UK for a bit, I'd like to I'd like to turn again to kind of the way politics has been done since the Brexit vote in the EU. I think there's a perception among many that Brexit is this kind of fire that's consuming all the air in our political debate, to use a 
bad metaphor. Um, it's essentially taking up so much time and so much political energy that there's very little uh, there's very little space left to pursue other important political agendas mm. in the UK. Has that been the experience in the EU as well? Or has the EU by and large sidelined this, kept it going, but got on with kind of business as usual? Pretty much, to be <laughs> honest. Um, I think from the very beginning, it was clear that Brexit was not a priority. It's just not. I mean, A, just by the way that the, the process of negotiating takes place in the EU. So it's led by the Commission. And as I explained earlier, there's a tight knit process. Um, so member states feel involved. And actually, sometimes, you know, when you chat to member state officials, they say, oh, thank goodness it's being led by the Commission. Because actually, we've, we've got, you know, lots of other issues that we should be focusing on. So they're very happy with the, the way that the process is going. And also, as you say, they, you know, they've got other issues that they're concerned about. So there are EU wide issues, like obviously, terrorism and security. Uh, the migration refugee crisis is also a big one. Uh, the future of the eurozone, mm. innovation, an aging population. These are all issues that the EU is looking at very closely. Yeah. And then you've got those member state issues. You have integration, social cohesion, labour reforms, all of those things which are really occupying a lot of member states' um, time and focus. So it doesn't mean that it's not important. It's not a priority and they're happy with the process, but obviously they, they you know, I think because they feel involved in the process, they don't necessarily feel that they should be involved more. But, but you know, they're keeping an eye on of the course. issue. Yeah, yeah, and, and some member yeah. states would be yeah. adversely affected. Just finally then, what is coming up next? When is the next big summit in the negotiation? What's what? What have we got to look forward to so as we move we... into the autumn? <laughs> so obviously now, so the British negotiating team is travelling, I think, almost on a weekly basis to Brussels to try and finalise those 20% remaining sort of issues in time for the October Council, which I believe is the week of the sort of 18th of October, 18th, 19th, so the Thursday and Friday. And if not, they would probably have an extraordinary European Council, is what they're called. So an emergency summit, if you want, in November, where they could vote on these issues. If if the UK and the EU strike an agreement, and if it goes through the British Parliament, then in March to 2019, the UK will leave, and then there will be a two-year implementation phase where that will be really, you know, all hands on deck trying to discuss the future yeah. agreement. Yeah. There are questions about whether that's enough time, whether they would need to extend that period for another year because although the UK will have left the EU, it will still be part of the single market and still be part of the customs union, but it will have no institutional say or vote on any of the legislation that involves. So that two years is pretty much as, as far as the UK, I think, would be willing to go you know, by being impacted by legislation that it can't really vote on. And then, you know, 1st January 2021, new agreement. But we've seen that it's been incredibly difficult up till now. Let's see what the next two years hold. I can't wait. <laughs> Georgina Wright, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And uh, Georgina's latest expert comment looking at the implications of a no-deal Brexit is up on the Chattermouth website now. So I'm here with Oliver Bullough, who has just written a new book, which is out on the 6th of September, published by Profile Books, called Moneyland, Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back. And what's it about? Money laundering. Well, what it's about is how a sort of global nomadic class of, sort of almost a transnational class of very rich people essentially managed to break free of any form of control by their fellow citizens and in such a way that they didn't just get their money out of the reach of a government but, but sort of got themselves, got their citizenship, got their property, got their children. Everything exists in a kind of cloud which is separate from nation states. And so that's why I called the book Moneyland because it suddenly struck me while I was working on a story four or five years ago, that essentially if you're clever and you structure your life and your property offshore, then it doesn't really exist anywhere. It isn't in any country. Um, and you can, I mean, you can see this, 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 this idea that essentially there's a hole in the statistics and a hole in, in, in the way the world is accounted for, 
which is created for by the sort of anonymizing effect of offshore. You can see it in, all over the place. So I essentially, instead of saying it was a hole, I decided to say it was just another country that, you know, if you if you make lists of, of the investment positions of all the countries, they don't add up. They, there, is a, there is a hole in the figure. So I said, well, instead of saying that's a discrepancy, let's just add another country to the list and call it Moneyland. And they do seem to have more in common with each other than with anybody else. Absolutely. I mean, this is what's really interesting about it. If you, Because obviously, if you look at a sort of a wealthy... Nigerian governor or an Afghan politician or a Ukrainian oligarch they have nothing in common that you know they're from different places they speak different languages they have different religions all this but when you look at it from the perspective of their money um, all those sort of differences fall away essentially that the money is almost always obtained in the same way it's obtained by bending or breaking or the rules or exploiting a favorable position of power that that you or, or, or a close friend or a relative has and then laundering the money offshore and then spending the money in, in one of a small number of places one of which is London of course New York is very popular, Miami, Los Angeles uh, Monaco Yeah, there's a small number of sort of wealth havens where the money ends up and so there's always this sort of triangular journey, the money begins somewhere in a, a poor country, a developing country, it's laundered in a, in a secrecy jurisdiction, it's spent in a wealth haven and, and that can pattern just repeats itself all over the world And how new is this? Because well, I sort of get the sense that, you know, there have always been a small select like group of people who, probably going back to the Middle Ages, have creamed off the top and hidden it and spent it somewhere else. Yeah, I think you could go back further than the Middle Ages. I think essentially, that in a way, the history of civilization is the history of powerful people lording it over non-powerful people. Mm-hmm. But there is a, an important difference between that and what we have now in that Previously, if you were a Tudor baron, say, or, or a, I mean, even a, the sort of the big controlling man in a hunter-gatherer band, you know, 40,000 years ago, if you stole stuff, eventually you'd have so much stuff you couldn't carry it around anymore. You know, if you, if you had gold, if you had jewellery, if you, whatever, I mean, you could, you could festoon your womenfolk in as much gold as they could carry, but even then you would eventually run out of hanging room, no matter, you know, it just gets to a point when you just can't steal anymore. Mm. But the astonishing power of the modern financial system allows that problem to go away because you know the touch of a button, the money's gone, and it's mm. and it's and it's whizzed around the world. And I mean, this is globalization, and and globalization has been very good in some ways. You know, obviously, it's lifted untold hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in China and India and so on. But this essentially, what my book is about, is not the the, the positive side of globalization, not the sort of the apples or whatever of, of companies who've. who've efficiently allocated capital where it can get the best return but the dark side of globalization which is people who have essentially hidden their money they're not investing their money they're they're hiding it and they're using the offshore system not to allocate capital but to hide capital Mm -hmm. and that is new and this is when i say new i mean it's 50 years old but began in i suppose in the in the early 1960s this the way that communications and and legal systems essentially adapted to create this liminal space offshore which isn't in any country and that that began here in london city of london and then once it had been invented as a concept the idea that, that something could be physically present but legally absent that that concept expanded all around the world and now obviously it's it, the genie is out of the bottle it's gone there's no there's no way you could put it back i think rather naively probably because i just hadn't thought about it enough i hadn't really realized how many people are involved in this industry there are so many different, you know, you're talking about lawyers, you're talking about accountants, you're talking about, there are so many different people who sort of unite to make this work. It, I mean, the, the, the logic of it is inescapable. If you you have money that can travel freely in a borderless world, but laws that only work up to a, a frontier and then stop and then new laws begin, essentially that money is always going to, in inverted commas, want you know, its its controllers will want it to go where it is most favourably treated. Mm. So the, the the logic of this is is always to continuous deregulation, lower taxes, less oversight, and if and if there isn't a jurisdiction that offers that, you know, isn't there isn't a jurisdiction that offers what a, the owner of, of capital wants, they can go to a small jurisdiction, Jersey, for example, the island of Nevis in the Caribbean. The, the, Cook Islands and say, why don't you write this law into your books and, and then all this money will come to you. Mm-hmm. And as soon as one of them has flipped, everyone else has to flip too. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially what happened when offshore was created as a concept in, in London. It was essentially a way of... London was was you know moribund as a financial centre after the collapse of the empire. And um, 
essentially it was a way of London undercutting Wall Street. Say, well, okay, bring your dollars to London, and then there'll be less regulations, there'll be less oversight, it'll be cheaper to operate. And so the American banks did. And then as soon as this happened, everyone else had to catch up with London because otherwise all the money was suddenly here. So Wall Street deregulated to catch up and then it it becomes this constant race to the bottom. Mm. But there isn't actually a bottom. You can just keep going down. Yeah, it's great, isn't it, really? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it is is depressing. But but what's astonishing about it and what I really enjoyed writing the book is there are so many astonishing characters involved and... You know, the, I mean, Sigmund Warburg, who, who, whose bank invented offshore and, and the Eurobond market in the early 1960s, amazing character. You know, this is a you know a German banker who turned up in London, was very much sort of outside the kind of old boys' club that controlled the city, and he just wasn't having it. He's he's like, look, we're bankers, we're not we're not, you know, civil servants. Let's get to it. And you know, he he was he was so into networking, he used to have lunch twice a day. And I just it's just it's really interesting, and these like buccaneering characters who. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, what they did was awful. Mm. And, and it would have been really nice had they not done it. But writing about them was really good fun. Yeah. I mean, lunch twice a day is, is very impressive, <laughs> yeah. I would say. I mean, and also, who likes networking that much? Nobody. Well, this is it. I mean, <laughs> if you like networking that much, you're you're going to win. You yeah. get ahead because you know all this stuff. You get to find out where the money is. And I mean, it also, I mean, things like, I mean, another aspect that I found really interesting was looking into the passport for sale business. Mm. And it's been a, a sort of, essentially in parallel with globalization and this and this money land dark side of globalization has been the the increasing number of very wealthy people who live in non-traditionally wealthy countries mm-hmm. so rich russians rich chinese people and so essentially they they are very rich and, and rich by any any global standards but they're stuck with a passport which is which is not very good yeah. and whereas traditionally if you're british you're rich and you get a rich country's passport if you're russian you're poor and you get a poor country's passport mm-hmm. but suddenly you have a, a wealthy elite in the developing world and they don't want rubbish passports and so inevitably the logic of Moneyland is that countries prop up that start selling passports and this began in in St Kitts and Nevis you know in the early 80s and then spread you know Dominica in in the Caribbean and and then once it really got going uh, thanks to you know a guy called Christian Kalin I write about in the book a a Swiss passport enthusiast you could call him it's spread now very widely I mean Mm. there's five countries in the Caribbean um, two or three, depending if you count Austria in Europe, and Moldova's about to join in. And it, it just it's always the way. You see the same pattern. One country starts doing it mm-hmm. and starts making money out of it. Then everyone else joins in. And something that was unthinkable, selling passports. Who sells passports? Mm-hmm. No one sells passports. Suddenly that's normal. If you're a wealthy you know, businessman or businesswoman from a, a, the third world, what we used to call the third world, it's normal to own a different passport now. Yeah, yeah it's, it's absolutely extraordinary. It's also presumably a status symbol. Well, it's all just you know, amongst lots of people too. It's sort of I don't just have a Russian passport. I also have a yeah, Nevis passport. But it's or, super useful yeah. because I mean this is what's I mean I was talking to a guy in I was talking to a guy in St Kitts who's a, a Palestinian businessman who's lived in Dubai for decades. Um, yeah, you know, I think if I remember rightly, a Palestinian passport gives you the right to visa free travel to twenty two countries. It's about as bad as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and he bought himself a, a St Kitts and Nevis passport, and suddenly it's one hundred and forty countries. Yeah. and it's for him. It, it's it's like a freedom mm. astonishing freedom and that's and i think it's actually often these things are described as what well, i try not to be judgmental in the mm. book i try and just sort of talk about it because often these things are described from a western perspective and you say well this is awful you shouldn't sell passports but look i mean i'm a british citizen so i can kind of go anywhere i like yeah but if you're a palestinian it's really bad yeah and and actually is it so bad that st kitts and nevis helped him get to travel around i mean i don't know i, I you know i don't want to judge that that's not and also, yeah. with Brexit coming up, if I could buy a German passport, I absolutely would. Well, well this is actually <laughs> you know. really, it's really interesting. I was in Malta. Malta is, oh, not, sorry, not Malta, Cyprus. Cyprus is one of the countries that sells passports, as does Malta, but this was Cyprus. And I was interviewing the, the Speaker of Parliament, and I and we were talking, it was post-Brexit, uh, and I was saying, well, God, you know, I bet there's a few Brits who wouldn't mm. mind buying a Cyprus passport to get an EU passport again. And he was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> And it's, and it's how it works, you yeah. know. You know, it's just it's very entrepreneurial. Yeah. You, you know, you're you're looking around. What assets do my, does my country have? You know, in two thousand and four, when the St Kitts and Nevis closed the sugar industry, they didn't have anything. They were totally stuffed, and mm. they looked around and were like, "Well, we've got passports. Let's try selling them." Well, because that's often the argument, isn't it? That there are particular havens who really would have nothing if they, you know, industry-wise, unless they did this. So that can often be used as an argument as to why it's sort of okay. Or whatever. Well, but, I mean, it's certainly sort of okay from their perspective. Yeah, I exactly. mean, some somewhere like Jersey, mm. which yeah, you know, in in the in the immediate post-war years, oh, well, I mean, it, it wasn't badly off, but but it, you know, it wasn't an easy place to make a living. It was you know farming, you know, potatoes, early vegetables, 
flowers, a bit of bucket and spade tourism. But, you know, that was it. You couldn't really make a good living there. Mm. And then they discover that if you put if you you put your pounds in Jersey, you don't have to pay, you know, tax on them anymore. Suddenly, boom, everything mm. everything's amazing. And the places are standard of living as high as London. Yeah. And, and that is all thanks to offshore finance. But what have the rest of us lost as a result? Mm. It is, that's the thing. It's, it's, um, it's great for the small jurisdictions. Mm. And, or it's great for London. You know, London is the, the prosperity of post-war London is based on offshore. Yeah. And it's great for us, but is it so great for everyone else? And I, in the book, I, I, suppose, I argue that essentially this has been, this leads to a sort of gradual collapse in democracy and governance in places which are vulnerable. Mm. Um, and, and gradually that collapse spreads and spreads. You look at places like Ukraine. Mm. Ukraine has been you know, comprehensively looted um, ever since independence by this new class of, of entrepreneurs and in inverted commas. You know, now the government no longer has control over all of its territory. Mm. Um, you look at Nigeria, the same. You look at places like Angola, where, you know, there are, you know, Luanda is supposed to be one of the most expensive places to live in the world. And yet, you know, two thirds of the country lives below the poverty line. Mm. It's really bad. Yeah. And, and, and you can't say those two phenomena aren't related. Yeah. It's this outstanding astonishing wealth inequality is is just driving deprivation it's the flip side of it and and all this money gets you know spent i was walking through knightsbridge yesterday I walk down brompton road there's a rolex outlet at number one hyde park there's another one halfway to harrods and another one in harrods it's three rolex outlets within a hundred yards it's like pretz <laughs> there are more rolex outlets than pretz That's right amazing. there you know and that I mean, who says, you know, I want a Rolex, but I can't be bothered to walk 30 metres. I'm going to get one here instead. You know, it's absolutely amazing. And and that's just bizarre. Yeah. And it's really distorting the way the world economy works. It's distorting, you know, whole chunks of cities, you know, Manhattan and, and West London, obviously, but, you know, other places too. And, and, and it's a really under-recognised phenomenon, and mm-hmm. particularly the fact that, you know, kleptocracy, um, this sort of grand corruption, this sort of looting of the world is 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 often talked about as sort of a national phenomenon you know russia has a kleptocracy problem or nigeria has a kleptocracy problem it's absolutely not a national problem it's a totally transnational phenomenon it is a phenomenon of globalization that you can't loot nigeria in the way that sonia Bacher looted it if you don't have access to offshore it's yeah. not possible to steal that much because you where, where do you put the money mm. and it's not possible to do what putin has done in russia or what yanukovych did in in, in ukraine or if you don't have the ability to stash your money somewhere mm. and put your money in London or put your money in New York. And that's the thing. So, I mean, sort of the, the, I suppose the argument of the book towards the end is, is that it's really important that in the West we recognise our own responsibility for what's happening yeah. and we start saying if we want to try and defend democracy globally, which I hope we do, then we need to, to get much, much more serious about refusing to accept this money into mm. our economies. And... It's one of the things that I think is a shame about Brexit is actually Britain was in a sort of slightly haphazard but still good way was leading this debate. I mean, David Cameron, for all his faults, was good on this subject. And that, you know, agenda is just, just there's no bandwidth for it anymore mm. because all we can talk about is, is Brexit and whether which party is more racist than the other. And, and it's just very depressing. You can tell me about it. I'm so depressed about the entire world at the moment. It's appalling. <laughs> um, but you just going back to Ukraine briefly, because I think... It, it's a really interesting example because, like you say, it's by and large this is money being taken out of states that are vulnerable. But it's also that it leads to massive distrust within the population because the people at the top are doing that and they know it. Yeah, I mean, part of the book is is an analysis of how corruption works when it's a system, mm. and and it's actually interesting. I'm not sure corruption is a, is, a, is a helpful word. There's a um, a former SBU agent. SBU is the Ukrainian successor to the KGB. Um, a, an SBU agent who says, look, what we have in Ukraine isn't corruption. Corruption is when it's 10%, 15%. This is total, it's everything. Mm. And if you call it corruption, you're misunderstanding what this is. This is a, a, a total melding of mafia and state into one organism. Is that essentially you extract all the money at the top, you know, you, you just take it out of the budget, and you, you know, whether that's in procurement fraud or just straight taking it out of the central bank, whatever, doesn't really matter. You take the money out of the top, and there is not enough money anymore to provide essential services. Mm-hmm. So people who are at the low level of state employment, so doctors, nurses, traffic policemen, whoever, anyone with a sort of face-to-face interaction with the public, they can't afford to live and they can't afford to do their job and they have to take bribes. Mm. You know, even if they don't want to, they have to take bribes. 
And, and so what you're essentially doing is outsourcing the procurement of bribes to everyone who is employed by the state. You steal the money in a chunk mm. and then it's replaced by state employees in small increments at every interaction with a citizen. Um, and what that does is, it, yeah, as you say, it destroys trust in the state by citizens because you it, you, you see the state as a, just a totally predatory mm. organisation that's just exists to make your life miserable. And the other thing is it makes everyone employed by the state an accomplice. Yeah. Because So if anyone kicks against it, if anyone says, you know, know what, I refuse to participate in this anymore, they, they can go to jail because they are guilty. Mm. And that's the problem is you have this... This constant dual system, which is there's a supposedly rule-based system which is entirely fictional and exists entirely in the breach, until suddenly someone challenges it, when you can mobilise the, the state as, against anyone who tries to rebel against the mafia. And it's very hard to do anything about this. In fact, to be honest, there aren't really any examples mm. of, of country once they have fallen into this, you know, what I call offshore bandit-ruled system. Of, of try of getting back. I mean, some people talk about Georgia, but even there, it's been very partial. And Ukraine, I mean, you know, they have what well, the revolution in Ukraine was now four years ago, uh, more than four years ago. You know, the symbol of that revolution, the palace, this this astonishing monstrosity of a log cabin that President Yanukovych built for himself on, on the edge of Kiev, that still hasn't been confiscated and returned mm. to the people. That's how dysfunctional the government is. Yeah. yeah, they haven't. It's like it's like you imagine that the people had stormed the Bastille in 1789, and four years later. It was still a pal- still a prison being run by the the onshore regime. That's essentially where you're at. Ukraine is so totally ruined as a country mm. that they just can't get it together to do the most simple symbolic things, and that's what you're up against. How, how you know how do you you know rebuild trust and how do you rebuild you know any kind of sort of administrative honesty when it's been undermined in this way? It's mm. really hard, and that's one of the reasons why it's so important that we defend it in the West and prevent this money undermining our own institutions, because once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. We've talked a bit about um, citizenship, but you give a couple of other examples in the book of diplomatic immunity. That was one of my favourites. Diplomatic immunity is is a, is a growth industry, diplomatic passports. And the, and the thing is, there's two kinds of diplomatic immu- diplomatic passport. There's a diplomatic passport, which is like a super passport, which basically means you get to go through the sexy queue in the in Heathrow and you don't need to queue and it's wonderful. Mm. That isn't what I'm talking about. That happens all the time by a diplomatic passport and you just get to you know go cut ahead of everyone in the queue there's this second phenomenon that has i mean it recently happened with boris becker i mean it hasn't yet played itself out with boris becker it'll be interesting to see what it does but the example i pick up on in the book was a was a, a saudi very wealthy saudi gentleman who who wished to divorce his wife the former supermodel christina estrada but didn't want to have to pay her a divorce settlement so he had himself made the saint lucian ambassador to the international maritime organization <laughs> and then when the london you know the london lawyers came and said give her half your stuff he was like i don't think so mm. and what's really interesting is watching the consequences of that because it's this is again an example of the logic of moneyland because before this happened it had always been assumed that ambassadors were appointed in good faith yeah that, that you appoint an ambassador and therefore an ambassador has diplomatic immunity because they need it for their job and they have to have it and it's an absolutely crucial aspect of their job. But what happens if a country appoints an ambassador just because he's given them some money? Mm. You know, And they'd have no intention, they don't know anything about maritime law, they have no intention of a, turning up to an international maritime organisation meeting. And they're only doing it because they don't want to pay a former supermodel any money. Mm. Um, what then? Yeah. And how do you respond to that? And, and the world is just not having these conversations. And okay, that's an absurd, almost, an, well, it's, it happens. It's not absurd, but it's a sort of extreme example. But it's going to happen more. Of, mm. course, of course it is. The, the, the pattern in the book is always that once one country, whether it's St. Lucia or St. Kitts and Nevis or wherever, London, whatever, has started doing it, other countries will follow because it's an open goal. Yeah. If you're the Central African Republic, you know, like in the case with Boris Becker, and you need the money, why wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, it's... I mean, what's the title that he's got? Just <laughs> I think he was. I think he was um, representative for culture and something to br- in Brussels to yeah. the European Union, which would be really interesting to see what happens because that's a. Uh, it might be that he actually really wants to do that gig. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, mean, I'm trying was, in the best faith in the world. There, there, I mean, there, there was a sort of a sort of kind of a lovely bit when for a while when they tried to argue that Sheikh Al Jafali genuinely cared about maritime law <laughs> and he didn't attend a single meeting he no. didn't, oh yeah it was it was absurd yeah. and and that's the thing it, it's it's when there is a wrinkle in international regulations yeah. you know it's something like diplomatic immunity someone will always find a way of monetizing it yeah and that's what, essentially what this is monetizing it for the benefit of a very wealthy person yeah. it's this, it's a ratchet all the time it, it clicks in only one direction it always clicks towards better for rich people and yeah. worse for everyone else and I thought the example of the Chinese implanting eggs... That was really dark. That I mean, 
that story, the the idea that because it's it's all about, you know, there's this, this sort of process I describe in the book. You obtain something, you conceal it, and you spend it. Yeah. Steal, conceal, spend. It's it's that three stage process is is what offshore enables. Previously, you could steal stuff and spend it, but you could always see the connection. Yeah. What offshore gives you is it breaks the chain. People are always looking for imaginative ways to break the chain. You can, I know, but this you, is pretty imaginative. But that is the Chinese implantation thing which in which the wrinkle in the law is the failure of japan to regulate surrogate surrogacy surrogate mothers really properly is that chinese wealthy chinese officials will be implanting fertilized eggs into japanese surrogate mothers those japanese women give birth to a chinese child who is supposedly japanese and then that japanese child is has all this property in China and, and, and assets in China and there's no apparent connection when a, but actually this child is the child of a, of a high-ranking member of yeah. the Chinese party and that is so dark yes because you know what kind of life is that child ever going to have they're going to grow up you know in a, in a I mean a, probably a very well-appointed orphanage but still an orphanage in Japan and it's like it's like a sort of particularly deranged Victorian novel the kind of thing when you know some some insane will has been passed down over the years saying, no, you must not see your parents. And if you, but if by the age of 18, you've never seen your parents, you know, you get to inherit the earth. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. And, and all this stuff is happening. People are always looking for these ways of separating someone from their money so they can steal as much as they want and not get done for it. But I mean, somebody sat down and came up with that as a plan. Yeah. That's I mean, what I think is absolutely astonishing. It's, and, and, and it was successful. Mm. You know, dozens of people doing it. And it's very profitable for the people who sell the services. And they were very up front about it said we didn't invent it for this we didn't intend it to be used for allowing people to to loot china with impunity but it's not our problem and and this you see the same argument being used with if you talk to company formation agents who sell particularly in america where they're very anonymous they're very hard to connect a person to a company you talk to a company formation agent and they say we're not selling fraud we're not committing fraud ourselves we're just selling companies all people do with them is their business. It's like you sell guns. I didn't meet, I didn't kill anyone. I just sold them a gun, yeah. which they killed someone. And it's that, you know, failure to recognise our own responsibility in the West in enabling these crimes is a real problem. Have a, you know, recognised concepts of, you know, thief and offence. Someone steals something, someone realises the value of that, of that stolen property. At the moment we're talking about the thieves, but we're not talking about the fences. And mm. the fences are what we're doing in London and in New York and in other places, and that's what we need to to have much more focus on. Because you, people are going to, if you if, if you can get away with it, you're going to keep stealing. You yeah. know, there is no incentive not to steal. If you look at asset recovery rates, you don't really know how much money is stolen every year, but it's estimated by Global Financial Integrity that about a trillion dollars is stolen, a bit more every year from the world's poorest countries, which is an incredible amount of money. Yeah. You know, and and if it is that much money is being stolen, a trillion dollars a year then asset recovery rates are about what 25 cents for every thousand dollars that get stolen i mean it's yeah. yeah it's it's nothing it's it's you know it's not even a, a not even an inconvenience no. you know you if you steal stuff you're going to get away with it and and that's a really good incentive to steal mm. particularly because you can buy such wonderful things Three Rolexes. On Three one Rolexes. Street. Just Absolutely. one for each arm and one for, yeah, you know, I don't know, go anywhere. <laughs> one neck. for little Johnny or whatever. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, little Dimitri. I mean, because we're sort of having quite a lot of conversations at the moment, I think, about political funding. Do you think sort of more financial transparency is sort of like even more crucial because, because of that, at least in the West? If the only way we're going to worry about this is because people are putting lots of money into political parties and we can't quite see where it's come from then maybe that might be the trigger for us to try and do something a bit more about it. Well, I, I, I do think that that's right. I think one thing I make very clear in the book again and again and again is this is not a conspiracy. Mm. This is too big to be a conspiracy. There yeah. may be many conspiracies within it, but this is a the, the Moneyland problem, the Moneyland ratchet, this this system of, of theft is created by the incentives inbuilt into the system. And everyone who's stolen a load of money they don't know each other they're, they're not connected but they do all have one shared interest which is that they don't want to have that money taken away from them and the key first stage of them not having it taken away from them is to make sure no one finds out they've got it and therefore there is a, a very powerful very wealthy constituency arguing against transparency and they're going to keep putting money into political parties and into political movements that help prevent transparency because transparency is a existential threat to their business model i think that this we've seen this a lot in american elections you know i think that the a lot of the donors to the republican party are very motivated by this mm -hmm. insistence that they should not have to ex reveal how much money they own 
I think we've certainly seen this in European elections. A lot of the the Russian money that's gone into um, elections in, in you know places in, in Eastern Europe, in, into France, you know, has been trying to achieve this, trying to break up efforts in, in the European Union level to to move towards greater transparency on a European Union wide level. I, I mean, I think to be honest, we've seen it in the Brexit vote. I think mm-hmm. that money that that went in, you know, anonymous money that went into via the uh, DUP into Brexit probably was was acting on the same way, trying to undermine European Union efforts to impose transparency. And I think we all need to be aware of that mm. because yeah, this is going to become, you know, if this money is building up at the rate of a trillion dollars a year, mm. that is more and more and more money pushing back against any efforts to control it or have any kind of oversight over it. And, and that's something that I don't think there's sufficient awareness of at the moment and we badly need to catch up on quickly because every year that goes by is an extra trillion dollars fighting against us. It's an astonishing sort of wave, isn't it, when you think about it? Yeah, yeah it's more of a tsunami. Yeah. I mean, like you say, law enforcement stops at borders yeah. and money doesn't. Yeah. What are the answers? <laughs> well, I think there have been some imaginative ideas. The, the, the unexplained wealth order, which came in in this country in February, is a good idea. The idea, because, you know, the problem is, if, let's say, let's call him Putin, an imaginary president, let's call him Putin, controls his own country's legal system Mm -hmm. that legal system is never going to prosecute him because he controls it in fact the only possibility that it might prosecute him is if he is no longer president and therefore they're probably prosecuting him for political reasons so if he puts his money in the uk or wherever and we try and prosecute him for money laundering we are never going to have cooperation from russia we're never going to have the evidence we need to remove that money to any way impede that money on Mm -hmm. on money laundering charges because you just can't prove the underlying offense unexplained wealth orders help slightly get around that problem because they start they they flip the burden of proof over and say actually you have to explain that this is how you got this money it's not that we have to explain that it's bad yeah. that's so that's an imaginative solution mm. but it's a pinprick you know it's a tiny tiny thing what we we badly need to do is a all the western countries need to start working together and start really in, in, in trying to bully each other into having best practice the, it, what they have in America in terms of opaque company ownership is a disgrace the absolute disgrace way worse than what Switzerland used to have and, mm. and you know and all that we we need to all move forward towards better transparency we need to properly regulate our company registries what well, our company's house in the UK it, it's a, just an unverified cesspit of information this needs to be properly checked the only person who's ever been prosecuted for falsely filing information at company's house and you can spend five minutes in company's house and find you know stacks of false information it's so obvious the only person who's ever been prosecuted was a guy called kevin brewer who falsely created a company in vince cable's name when vince cable was business secretary in order to show how easy it was and he got done he was like he was literally a whistleblower and he got prosecuted for it and that's the 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 level that we're at in the uk when you know no one has been prosecuted for misusing it and that needs to change yeah so we, there is so much that we need to do in the West before we can even think about mm-hmm. talking to, to developing countries and saying, why don't you get your house in order? You know, there was that moment in, in when David Cameron had his anti-corruption summit in, in um, 2016 before the referendum uh, when, when he was overheard referring to Nigeria as fantastically corrupt. Mm-hmm. And President uh, Buhari replied, well, yes, we are fantastically corrupt and can we have our money back, please? Yeah, I mean, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and, and absolutely right. And that's the problem. So, you know, let's stop accepting their money and let's start putting systems in place to prevent the money getting here. And once that's happened, the incentives to steal will be changed. People won't want to steal so much money. And and maybe then we can start looking at ways to help the Ukrainians, help the Nigerians, help the Angolans, you know, prevent this kind of egregious theft. Stealing this stuff is really good fun if you get away with it. I mean, if you look at one example I talk about in the book is Equatorial Guinea. Now that went from the, the ruling family in Equatorial Guinea went in a decade from being patronised by every single international organisation you could you could talk about as sort of, you know, essentially barely literate apes, to being richer than the Queen of England in a, in a, in a decade. The son of, of President Obiang, also called Obiang, obviously, you know, wandering around Malibu, buying supercars, you know, hanging out at the Playboy Mansion. It's, it's brilliant. And, I mean, he's not going to give that up voluntarily. Of course he's not. Why would he? I mean, you'd kind of need to persuade him he doesn't want to do that anymore. Mm. And that he has other options. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe making his country a nicer place for everyone else, yeah. not just stealing all the money and spending it in California and Paris. It's astonishing, and if you look at... I mean, there have been... He's been so egregious that there have been court cases against him. Mm. There's been uh, one in, in, in the United States and then one in, in France, and, and those have taken away some of his property. Yeah. But it hasn't really cramped his style. He's still 
you know, hanging out and spending a load of money because, you know, he's got a load of money. And alas, the threat of Boris Becker applying for something in your country is not enough, is it, <laughs> apparently? Yes, yes the, the, I think, the, yeah, the Central African Republic is prepared to take the yeah. reputational hit. <laughs> or oh, when Gerald Depardieu took Russian citizenship. Yeah. That, Although that, that was more political, I That was more him being a bit of a wally, I think. <laughs> the, the, um, he'd, he'd be, but then Russia does have very low taxes, so, I mean, it could yeah. theoretically be a tax haven if it had regulations and institutions anyone was prepared to trust. True. Don't give my ideas, I think. Yes. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much for coming in to talk to me. I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a great read. A depressing topic, but great read. Thank you. Um, and, yeah, it's out on the 6th of September, so... Yeah. Everybody should go and buy it. Available in all good bookshops. Yeah, excellent. Thanks very much. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Agnes, you were right. It is a depressing topic. <laughs> but there was also some laughs. Yeah. I enjoyed it. It was good. Thanks. Good. Boris Becker. Boris Becker. Who knew? Wow. You know? um, no, um, Rolexes. As well, the Rolex. Yeah, that will that will live with me. Yeah, I might even go and maybe we should do an intro where we visit each of the shops, and you go to the money and laundering. Start haggling. <laughs> no, just start haggling. You know, well, the guy down the road will sell me one of those for <laughs> six hundred pounds. I don't want what a are you Rolex. Give me? Yeah. I don't want a Rolex. The you danger know. would be we'd end up owning a Rolex. Yeah, exactly. Between and being us. considerably less rich <laughs> than we were. Anyway, um, it, uh, you know, it's all about the Philippe Patek, isn't it? Really. I suppose so, but yeah. I, to be honest, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> it's those amazing watch I'll adverts for you. where it's like, you don't really own a Philippe Tech, you just look after it for the next generation. Oh, okay. That was my advert voice, by the way. Nice, that's a good advert voice. Thanks. Yeah. I can be hired. I like it. Indeed, in fact, <laughs> we can be hired to, for this <laughs> podcast. Uh, Give us money, guys. Yeah. We're up for it. We'll sell anything on yeah. here. We've already given a plug to Rolex. They gave us 10 grand. True. <laughs> I have actually done advert voiceovers before once. Really? I don't Professionally? Know I mean, ish. Yeah, it's for a Polish bath bomb company. <laughs> it was for the Chinese English language adverts. <laughs> really? Yes. Is this on YouTube? Can I, we find it? No one will be able to find it. Can we play it? <laughs> no, I had to leave, say things like leaves your sink, skin silky smooth. Somebody nicknamed it Bath Time with Agnes. It was great. Bath Time awful. with Agnes. Anyway, wow. this will all get cut, so that's fine. Um, Certainly won't. <laughs> <laughs> Stop oversharing on the podcast, Agnes. Anyway, if you've liked what you've heard, <laughs> please leave us a review and rate us and follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new episodes. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimpton and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs> <laughs>